When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Well, we are wrapping Season 9 of Electric Bukaloo. We've pressed on past the first novel. We've survived House of the Dragon Season 1. And now we are moving through the first part of A Clash of Kings. I've met some new friends along the journey. Looking forward to the next part where we get a robust introduction to Theon's interior. Kind of gross. Davos, very different in the book than the show. So that is all next season. For this final podcast of Season 9, Aaron returns to do some House of the Dragon feedback. And then I talk about House of the Dragon with Jeffrey Chown. Jeffrey is Professor Emeritus at Northern Illinois University, who specializes in long-form television. So uh, Jeffrey Chown joins me to talk House of the Dragon after my feedback segment with Bosmang Aaron. Without further ado, Aaron is back. So Aaron, a little bit of feedback for House of the Dragon, and um, you're probably on to other more apocalyptic narratives. Let hey, let me ask you a quick question before we get going. Sure. Um, when you have, because of your chosen profession, hmm. uh, when you have a big tent show like The Last of Us, and it's on the horizon, uh, do you feel a sense of relief or a sense of anxiety? Hmm. Boy. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, it reminds me a lot of the quote about uh, head coaches in the NFL or really any any insanely competitive person that the victories feel like a relief and the losses <laughs> are crushing. You know, you yeah, don't get any yeah. joy or real elation out of a win. It's just more like, oh, thank God we didn't lose. And then if you lose, it's like a million. I, I've made that's what it feels like because like. um you know, when we started this, it's like we didn't have any particular goals for success or like any kind of, you know, mon monetary targets we're going to hit. So it's like when, you know, we did a show and it got a lot of response, it was like, oh, this is this is fun and this is pleasant. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, once Game of Thrones went off the air in style, um, you, you know, like there's a whole contraction to the to the industry, it felt like. And then you had the pandemic and, and I yeah, I, I get. Like, I remember being really apprehensive about House of the Dragon and uh, kind of with with the same thing with the the, the Last of Us, because the thing mm -hmm. is, is like I knew this story was good. I knew the people involved are good. I was just like, is society sick of zombies? We just got done of 17 <laughs> seasons of The Walking Dead. 
that uh-huh. was floundering, you know. Is that are you are you being a little bit is is that is it actually 17? No, it was 11. <laughs> okay. And that last season say, had three seasons dang. in it. But yeah, it it was it was it was just 11, but uh I was like, you know, there's but the, the the high water mark the wind of zombies factor was, feels like 17. Yeah, and the high water mark of zombies was a while back, but man, it seems like uh all systems go, so Yeah, this show does have this the feeling like the early numbers are good, and the season finale numbers are going to be better. That that's that's the way it feels to me. Yeah, or at least they're going to like if you know you got a five six million audience and you maintain that to the to the you know the end because that's kind of like House of Dragon did. It came out big, ten million, and kind of just held uh-huh. on that audience. It didn't grow a lot. I I do expect it to grow a lot between seasons one and two. But um, yeah, no, I I'm I, I'm hoping it does because I think if uh, you know that 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 it, it, the the next the next episode will be telling if there's not a huge drop off. That means a lot of people tuned in to, to see what the fuss was about and liked it. Uh-huh. So we'll see. Yeah. yeah, Because yeah. that's the house of dragon did gain a couple hundred thousand between uh week one and week two. So that's always a real, real strong indicator. Right. Right. Yeah. So since, so the answer is you feel relief, but you never feel like, uh, do you ever allow yourself to have a moment of, you know, like enjoying a little bit of success. I think me and Jim try to, because neither one of us are prone to to, to to doing that naturally. So we try to, like, when times are good, like, you know, towards the end of House of Dragon, kind of like, hey, man, soak this up. Like, we're crushing it. Uh, the numbers are good, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah. I, yeah, it, yeah. But, but, like, not as much as we, you know, not it, mostly it's, uh, wow, that was great. Let's, let's, let's uh, plan for the, immediate future because it's always the next thing right you know you don't yeah, have like time right. to it, it, i guess post house of dragon was the closest we've come to that for a while because it happened at the very end of the year and we only had like a month and then the christmas stuff happened and then we get, took two weeks off so there was maybe more basking than usual this year yeah yeah i could see that I could are see you that. a big are you a big basker do you do you do you soak it in when you have a big win when you finish a big book or you know I yeah I do I sort of allow myself to feel that way it's it's a it's weird with books because it's like the there's there's no real finish line it's like you complete right. the book and then and then it's you like four polishing. months before you actually yeah. see it you know in print mm-hmm. and then by that point you it it feels a little anticlimactic and then there's the promotion so it never feels like it's really done mm. with it with that but I do feel like. You know, for people that are bald move fans, they should know that this is this comes at a cost, right? They, they you you've you kind of you've got a lot on the line for this. So I'm I'm just curious if if folks are interested in you know they're invested in the platform, they want to know what more that they can do to sort of support bald move. Where what can they do? Oh, I mean, the club is the. That's the thing that keeps us going no matter what the traffic is because, you know, people are tuning in for the premium content and whatnot. And, yeah. you know, like uh, instead of pennies on the dollar you get for advertising, you get dollars on the dollar. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. It's, so it's the, the, how, the do they, how do they join support, the club if they're not part of the club? Support.baldmove.com for all the great support. ways to support Bald Move, chief amongst in the club, right. which is the first option. Support.baldmove, all one word, dot com. Yep. All right, fantastic. So I've got um, 
got a few uh, questions for you that came to the book at Bald Move. Um, wait, no, book at baldmove.com. That's my feedback email. And what's what's uh, your feedback email? Uh, hot D at baldmove.com. Um, All right. So yeah, half of these come to book, and half of these come to Hot D. And and and, and if and, you want, are, are we going to do this on a regular basis? Because if so, then you keep I guess send them into Hot D. But like, uh, I don't monitor I, show boxes yeah, in between I would seasons. Say, so yeah, I will be monitoring book at baldmove.com daily. So if you want that, you know, if we do this once every ten weeks or whatever, um, and you absolutely want yours to be read. Uh, go ahead and send it to book at baldmove.com. Mm-hmm. All right. This is a, the first question from Al- Alfonso. Uh, Alfonso writes, Maester Anthony has suggested that characters who bond with dragons become more violent. I'd like to suggest a th- similar theory, not related to dragon magic, but to the blade dark sister. Is it possible that we have here an example of a cursed blade? This sword has passed from Visenya, who was known to be more violent than most women of her time. Then it was passed to Magor the Cruel. After that, it was uh, owned by... He, he offers a list of everyone who owns uh, this blade, including uh, uh, Damon. Mm-hmm. We know his proclivities. Um, several of these kings are known for their violence, Shaharis being the outlier here. But perhaps his legacy as a conciliator is more propaganda than truth. Or perhaps he just didn't have cause to touch the sword as often as the rest. As an additional data point, in the book, Damon says, Dark Sister has a thirst for blood, in quotes. Thoughts? What do you think, Aaron? I'm trying to think. Is is Dark Sister a cursed blade? Because you've got... There's a lot of assholes... In this list, you know, you got Megor the Cruel. <laughs> Visenya was, you know, kind of a piece. Of I wouldn't war- call her an asshole, but she's definitely of the, uh, of more the, of a warrior. Yeah. Um. And didn't she support Megor? Like that was. Um. She. Yeah. She. She wanted her son. Which, on, yeah. Yeah. And she passed the sword to I him. Guess that's and, not yeah, too. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, is. Uh, uh. Is is are we talking about Prince Aemon Targaryen? Is that the Dragon Knight? That's the dragon knight. But he's, yeah. like, he's known to be like a noble. Yeah, he's like the storied knight of knights that does everything right. And was here's what I like about this, and I like here's what I like about because what he's what um, Alfonso is reminding us is that the stories about a prince, a king, a knight are all filtered through perspectives. Mm. And the history books might make someone like Megor the Cruel more cruel than he was. And they might make someone like the Dragon Knight more noble than he was. But these are all, in some ways, unreliable narrators that are telling us this story. And the, the proof of this is that, did Damon kill his wife in the books? Unclear. You know, unclear. Did Damon, did Damon ever choke Rhaenyra in the books? No. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of stuff that the history books don't pick up. And do we believe the propaganda about some of these characters? Mm. It's hard. It's hard to say. Um, I, You know what? Here's what I where I went wrong. I was under the impression that Dark Sister was a blade that was like 
crafted from like some kind of meteor. But it, when I looked it up, it's just Valerian steel. I, I could be confusing that with a different blade altogether. Yeah, the Danes have the sword of uh, the Dawn. Oh, Dawn, that's, that's the one that's got the, like the milky white blade that was formed from meteorite. Okay, that's the yeah. one I was I was confusing that one with. There might be another one because I just discovered a new. Well, we'll get to this in the feedback. I discovered a new Valerian steel blade I had not heard of before. Um, the axe? No, no, no I did. I, I deserve Valerian steel axe somewhere. There is a the Celtigars, I think that's how you say their name. Uh because I was reading about the Celtigars with the, the first Davos chapter in Clash of Kings. Mm-hmm. Their family weapon that they passed on from generation to generation is a Valyrian steel axe, which I had no idea about. Man. Imagine if Gimli had that. Uh <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's I think I think this is an interesting theory, and it could also like if it is a cursed blade, does it like follow the other Targaryen curse about the gods flip mm-hmm. a coin and the lands heads mm-hmm. up, they're awesome. If the lands tails like is the you know, and, and and the um the Valerian steel dagger being enchanted to you know mm-hmm. when it's heated to to reveal this this text, like there is they're hinting at kind of like magic swords, you know. Yeah, this show is not above Magic Blade. I, at right. least I'll say Martin's World is not above like a magic. And weapon. all the Valerian steel weapons are somewhat magic. There are they were made through some arcane practice, probably involving magic and dragon fire, and no one yeah. really understands it. And you know they're they're just better than yeah, every blade. And with they kill white spells white walkers with with ease. So it's it's yeah, you're yeah. right. Like saying the show's not above Martin's not above having. A magic sword um lightbringer might end up being a kind of a magic sword mm-hmm. so yeah i i i wouldn't i mean i i don't i i don't subscribe to the theory but i couldn't disprove it with anything in text that's one of these things it's hard it would be it's hard to disprove but it's and it's kind of cool so it gets points for being cool so indeed Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, next question uh, from your feed. Rebecca wrote in uh, to praise you. And Steve Anthony says, I've been listening to your Game of Thrones coverage for years. And upon the end of Hati, I was looking for more content from you, too. The various feeds that have woven into each other. I stumbled upon the episodes with Anthony and Steve doing a first time watch of Game of Thrones and was reeled in. The two are hilarious. Mm. and I've developed an affinity for listening to their banter almost as much as you two. High praise. Oh. High praise. After I caught up on those, it sounds so sounds so fucking full of myself <laughs> <laughs> to say high praise. 
Uh, after I caught up on those and listened to the whole rewatch podcast, I tuned in to the Bukaloo reads rereads with Anthony and guests until I caught up on that as well. Funny, I remember listener feedback when someone asked if Jim would read the books and do a possible book club podcast back in the season eight finale, which was immediately shut down by Jim. LOL. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's he's not he's allergic. Super. I mean, like I said, fantasy. We got him in by a thread. You know, mm-hmm. or we're, we're hanging on like a magic sword might just send him spinning off into the darkness. So reading <laughs> is, is, a, is a bridge too far, apparently. Uh, I must uh, say thank you for inviting Anthony to lead this adventure as he goes chapter by chapter with interesting guests who specialize in medieval history. Can't get enough of Steve, who's hilariously dry and has a great rapport with Anthony. Uh, thanks so much for the amazing continuing coverage of the Game of Thrones world. It's not only fun to listen to, but broadens my understanding of the many facets and layers of Germs world building uh yeah you got a lot of praise there from uh rebecca yeah thank you rebecca i i do appreciate the feedback um yeah yeah no it's it's it was a i think it was a a bukaloo was sort of a act of devotion right you know there's there was no real there's no need for it (laughs) (laughs) everyone was everyone was pretty content to move on with their lives um and it was a little bit of a risk to do a book club kind of podcast because there's not a lot of examples of those uh, being successful. But we've had fun, and and uh, and thank you, Rebecca, for tuning in. It's cool to hot D because you know you took over the Bukaloo after it the uh, you know the Game of Thrones feed had lie fallow for you know except for some of the little mini mini series that we did you know it was pretty much 18 months had been kind of just sitting there doing nothing um and it's nice that you know you needed a little bit of time for the wounds to heal yeah you know yeah it's true just, that's just, true just, let the let the let the fart clear out of the you know the, the stale air whatever whatever <laughs> yeah. um and uh yeah like i it's it's nice that we had a banger with hot d because i think it brought a lot of new people uh, mm-hmm. A lot of new blood and a lot of new people to enjoy uh, your your guys's uh, in intra season coverage. So this is a question from Jennifer, and this is specifically for you, Aaron. So no, I don't have to answer this one. Which actor from the original Game of Thrones series has made the best career choices? Put another way, which has parlayed that show to the best personal success? Pedro Pascal, of course, is not eligible as that answer is too easy. That's a bummer. The you, this because Pedro Pascal obviously is the one who is the breakout star from that show. Um, yeah, even if you even if you delete The Last of Us, The Mandalorian is almost an instant iconic role, right? Yeah. Like the affection for the Mandalorian has has been off the charts. And he had, you know, some good seasons with, on Narcos, um, where he's hunting and pa- uh, pa- uh, Pablo Escobar. He did pretty good work in the Second Kingsman. Um, oh, I never saw that. Yeah, the Second Kingsman. Yeah, there's. It turns out there's a there's a an American branch of the Kingsman. I think they're called the G Men or uh. something. And Pedro Pascal is, you know, got a cowboy, and then you know they're all very stereotypical like texans uh the 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 secret order there and they all got cowboy bats and big belt buckles and pedro you know is there with this texan drawing it up and it's 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 a lot of fun it's a lot of fun um is he is he is he british originally or is he 
uh, European in some way. I thought Pedro He's Pascal so was many American, sort of... but with um, Spanish. Look it like, up. oh no, I guess he was born in, in Chile. Okay, so that's interesting. But he's got dual citizenship, American. Uh, so I met is his mother, and I guess he's more of European Spanish, like Basque and Spanish descent. Um, huh. Yeah, really nailed that cowboy. Persona. I, you know, right. some people were talking mess about it. I thought, I, I, I thought he sounded a lot like Joel from the video game. Who, you mm-hmm. know, and then that's the other thing is like people, people don't understand that like um, southern accents could be turned kind of can, can be turned up and down as you know, uh, the, especially in like Central Texas. You know, not everybody mm-hmm. is like super syrupy, drawly, but they can be when they're like you know playing it up or when they're you know kicking shit and whatnot. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I thought it's I thought it's a pretty good accent. It's it's rough because Game of Thrones didn't exactly launch these people's careers. It, it and and it seems like a lot of them have made bad choices. Um, who plays Sansa? I'm drawing a blank on all these people. Sophie, Sophie Turner. Turner. Sophie Turner. Like you'd think getting on the X Men as Jean Grey would be a nice lateral genre move, but she was in yeah. some of the worst X-Men, some of the shittiest uh, of, of the X-Men. And that yeah, did... I will say not because of her. No, no. I think that she was a fine Jean just Grey. Bad, bad, just... bad movies. So I feel like... Ma- Maisie got it involved question. in another kind of like off-branch New Mutants kind of thing that got shelled for years, and I've never even... So like, um, I know... Um, what was is it Richard Mard Madsen that was Rob Stark? Um, oh yes, of course the Eternals, right? He had the Eternals, which is unfortunate. But he also had a couple of kind of like action man movies where he's like a secret agent and stuff that I didn't think made. Um, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, I I guess if I had to say, um, Kit Harrington probably has come out of this with the best career because he's had some really good like uh that seven days in hell uh with uh, andy sandberg where they're tennis stars in the 80s and they're playing a game that lasts seven days that was really funny and it showed oh like, and i haven't even heard of this. oh it's it's worth watching and it showed a side like a comedy side um that you know you don't really get to see much in game of thrones because Jon snow is so serious and uh, but like he hasn't, it's not like they've lit the world on fire. And of course, he's also in the Eternals, mm-hmm. which is a, a terrible. I mean, maybe they should have gotten away from the genre stuff. The young ones. Uh, did you ever see the Cyrano movies with uh, Dinklage? Because I have not seen. That. I did not either. Um, but also, I mean, like, it, you could do worse than being in Infinity War. I, I thought that they used Dinklage pretty well true, in Infinity as War as the giant dwarf. Um, yeah, yeah. I, and the, the thing is, is was Tink- Dinklage already a star though? He wasn't quite a household name, but he had had a pretty he wasn't a household name. He had yeah. pretty good career, station agent, elf. Um, okay, this might be up your alley. I don't know if you've seen this yet. Well, he was also in the Lion the Witch wardrobe. So he he had done some pretty high profile stuff before. Huh, uh, you can also okay. say Sean Didn't... Bean because he's continued to have a fine career of dying in movies and television shows. <laughs> but what else did he die in? I, I don't know. I just uh, I surely he's done something in the last ten years. I, I know I've seen. Surely him... he's died on screen at least three. times. I know I've seen him in something as a villain, as a villain's oh, character. Yes, the... he yes he was in a, a train show. He was it was like a post apocalyptic show where. 
Snowpiercer. He was in Snowpiercer. Yeah. So he's done, you know, and he, he, but he had a fine career before. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, have this is this just came out recently. It's on Amazon Prime. It's called The Rig. I don't know if you've seen. I this. have not. Okay, that's about an oil rig, and it's got both Ian Glenn, who was um, Jora Mormont. Yeah, Jora's done, and it's also got uh, Alistair Thorne, who famously gives Jon Snow a hard time up, sure. up north. Uh, those are two characters that are in that show. It's actually pretty decent, and I'm only a few episodes in, but uh, you know, you've, you've got 50 minutes to throw away. It's worth a, a throwaway 50 minutes. The Enjora was also a, a pretty memorable heel on Downton Abbey too. Uh, I think this was during he, oh, the Game of Thrones. I don't think run. I saw that. He wooed Lady Mary for 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 a while as a huh. as a newspaper man. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, you got, uh, I think, are, do you have the next one? Yes, I, think you've I do. One. Uh, Elizabeth wrote in and said, I really enjoyed your discussion on the Green Knights. I especially like to deep dive into what was real, was illusion, and the role of women. I found the film very reminiscent of The Last Temptation of Christ. In that film, too, an illusory life unfolds in which the protagonist is given what he thinks he wants and told that there's only one woman, i.e. all women are interchangeable. And in the end, after seeing that life... Yeah. He goes back to the inflection point and makes a different choice. I was wondering if you saw the similarities as well, and if you know of other films that play with the sort of decision made, not made theme. I did think that there is there is a, that bit in Last Temptation where you're not sure how the movie's going to end, and it give you almost gives you an alternative ending before it gives you the the actual ending, and you also have the all women, all women are the same person, just different faces, which is. Not that well-veiled misogyny, in my view. Um, but I don't know. What do you think, Aaron? A, a movie that kind of gives you alternative endings. Uh, the one that, because I haven't seen The Last Temptation of Christ. It's one of the few Scorsese films that I have not seen at this point. Um, and it's on my, you know, it's on on my list of things to do. Probably, you know, if we we watch, we'll probably do a podcast on it. But um, have you seen The Rival? With Amy no. Adams, no, I and not. Uh, Jeremy Renner. Um, this is about aliens that have not have I not seen this? that that come to Earth and oh, Arrival, of course, Arrival. I thought you said Rival. Oh yeah, no, Arrival, no, Arrival yeah. is one of my favorites. Yeah, so yeah. it's it's about a and this is kind of like a long way to get there, but it's it's about a movie and I don't I don't want, oh gosh I guess. How do we not spoil? How do we not that? spoil if, the premise of the movie? Yeah. The premise of the movie is aliens come to Earth, and they try to communicate, and they have this three D holographic, like ink based mm -hmm. symbolism writing system. And as Amy Adams, who is a language expert, a linguist, she begins the laborious work of translating this, and it turns out these entities are higher dimensional beings that see time as yet another dimension, just like, you know. Yeah, their perception of reality is in some way filtered through language categories, so something like that. Amy Adams, through the course of the movie, starts to, her brain starts to rewire, and she starts very imperceptibly being able to perceive, imperceptibly well, let, let, perceive. Let me pause you and just say, yeah, to avoid spoilers, she... She starts to perceive things that she doesn't quite understand at first. Yeah, yeah. And there is a little bit of that, you know, 
it's not quite the same, but it is very powerful. Um, that like, you know, which would you have yeah. done everything the same? Would you gone back and made a choice if you knew the full ramifications of it? And what does that mean? Um, yeah. and I think it's, that's, that's a, it's a fantastic movie. Yeah. It's a, if you have not seen that and you, you, you have any interest in film at all, it's, it's, in fact, I think it's my daughter's favorite movie. I just rewatched it a couple um, months ago. Um, so good. With my son, who's like a raging science fiction. So I'm going back and like showing him like Interstellar yeah. and and uh, yeah, it's it, it holds up. And uh, if you're interested, we got a we got a podcast on it. If you want to search Arrival Bald Move. Fantastic. This is from Herc the Jerk. Um, do you think that House of the Dragon would actually work better without the dra- without the dragons? <laughs> um, <laughs> almost. I kind of like this. Uh, almost all of the intrigue of the first season could be done without any magic whatsoever, and it might have made the crab feeder story arc considerably more interesting. Aside from the final episode where the dragons actually come into the plot. My feeling is that the dragons are no more than CGI window dressing. Would I have? W- oh, sorry, would it have helped or hurt the show to eliminate the dragons? Aaron, I feel like this is like asking if Doctor Strange Love would work as well if you removed thermonuclear bombs from the equation <laughs> because they are only really seen in the last scene, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, but like they are the subtext that make all the other drama work like these strategic weapons in house of the dragon, the dragons, they are the thing that are supplying a lot of the drama and make a lot of the political intrigue possible. So like I can kind of squint and see like, yeah, if you look at screen time, they seem superfluous or like window dressing or just like a fantasy Uh schmear, but like the entire setting kind of requires their existence to make the political stuff work. That's my yeah, that's yeah. my read on it. What about you? I kind of like this cuz I I I've been I, I had a conversation recently where I thought maybe House of the Dragon should be not should be compared with Game of Thrones so much and maybe it should be compared with House of Cards. Mm. For a lot of you know reasons, you got the political intrigue, but then of course everyone in the story is a little bit dirty, right? Yeah, and uh, it's a lot of talking in rooms and whatnot. Um, I think you could do this. I think I think if you substituted the dragons for like a real world military advantage, like like who's got the most actual knights, you know, who can battle on horseback. Or who's got the you know who's got the the biggest fleet you know th- those are the kinds of things who's got elephants you know you could do this whole show with just elephants House of the Elephants hmm. um, and it would be it would basically be the same show but I'm hoping going forward that the, the the dragons are actually kind of more integral to these machinations I think I agree with Herc the jerk I think. I think that this show is more of a political a political drama than it is a fantasy drama. I'll also observe that I think the show would be less popular without dragons. Because there's a, a sizable <laughs> sure. part of the people that like tune in that wouldn't, you know, and I, I know the, the mm-hmm. probably dragons turn off some people who just love a good political pot boiler, but 
yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I feel like I feel like there's a sizable part of the audience that'd be like, no dragons, meh, if they if they if they didn't have dragons, you know. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. And then um oh, do you have one more? I do. Mike O. Okay. It's a little late to help him out this season, but maybe for next season. It says I'm in a Game of Thrones themed dynasty football team organized by regions from the series. I took over uh, one of the bastard teams and thus had to take the bastard name of my region for the first year, Stone. So he's in the the region that the he's fighting out of is the Vale. Question: uh, Other than the Arons, the Royces, and the Baelishes, are there any interesting houses or factions, i.e., the Silent Sisters, Children of the Forest? From uh, IE, etc., from either the Vale and either Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon. It's a humble show mm. watcher. I don't recognize the other houses at this point. I'm leaning towards House Lips just for the logo. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, like, I think that there's a couple. You, you you mentioned the Royces, and I'm not sure if you're like if they're already taken in the Vale uh, and they're not available for. Um, uh, the, the claiming, but like I think uh, that you know they have a very rich tradition as being first men, and uh, they uh, they they used to be the the kings in their own right until the Andals came and mm. uh, established the 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 king of the mountains in the Vale, and that that line was called the Bronze Kings. The Bronze Kings sounds like a good team team name. Oh yeah, you could have like a you know bronze crown. Um, the ha- house Corbray is one of the minor houses that, uh, does this and that and the other in the background of the series. And they have a Valerian steel sword called lady forlorn. And oh, their, nice. their sigil is really cool. It's three Ravens carrying three bleeding hearts and you could call yourselves the forlorns. Uh, also there's an Island chain called the three sisters and <laughs> men from this island are called sister men <laughs> and and uh as per the other question you could the your banner could be light shades of blue and pink uh go with like a trans pride flag um uh, okay i've got a different direction here yeah so so maybe lesser known about but in the veil there are these uh, unaffiliated clans I, the Tyrion yep, meets yep right so here's a few names of the clans. You got the Stone Crows, um, Sons of the Tree, Sons of the Mist, the Painted Dogs, the Moon Brothers, the Milk Snakes, the Howlers. That's pretty good. And you got the Black Ears and the Burned Men. Yeah. And you can. What was the taunt that they always like? I'll I'll feed your feed your. I'm gonna cut off your cock and feed it to the goats. Yeah, that like could that. be your taunt. Your team's taunt when when the, the other <laughs> team comes to town. We're gonna we're gonna cut your cock off and feed it to our goats. <laughs> There's a great scene where uh, Tyrion tells Timmet to cut off Pycelle's man parts and feed them to the goats. Uh-huh. And Timot looks around and says, "There are no goats." And Tyrion says, "We'll make do." Right. That would be a fun <laughs> logo. You could have like a goat that's like holding uh, a kielbasa in its its mouth. Mm. Mm-hmm. A bratwurst, you know, because it's tailgating, <laughs> right? But you would know the hidden so. the hidden terror that lies in that logo. <laughs> very good. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. 
Jeff, can I just start by asking if you are a fan generally of fantasy lit? Uh, I was not before uh, Game of Thrones. No, I ended up reading all five books. And yeah, yeah. I, I became a fan of, of George Martin, although I'm very frustrated that he won't finish the, the series. But uh, <laughs> sure. um, you, you and millions of A lot others. of other people, yes. Uh, <laughs> so what was it? I'm assuming that the show brought you to the books. Is that right? I was uh, very interested in what I call long form television. And uh, I, you know, way back when I was an English major and then I sort of moved into my PhD is in American studies and I ended up in film. But I got interested in what I thought was a new form of television, which is these long series, which uh, sort of evolve themes and characters over multiple episodes and sort of reminded me of classic novels and things like that. And that there was more, more character development, more of a, a range of story than uh, uh, what you get in a series, a, a network television show or something like that. And a lot of this came about because of uh, HBO and uh, uh, I taught a class on, I taught a number of classes on Mad Men. I taught a class on, uh, uh, Deadwood, which is one of my very mm-hmm. favorite shows. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did two classes on The Wire. And so I was doing different uh, uh, HBO shows. And we would I, we'd take a semester and we'd go through all the episodes and uh, we would kind of examine the complexity of what they were dealing with. And uh, so that led me to wanting to try uh, Game of Thrones. And I think the first class that we did, uh, they were about, I think they were in season three or season four Mm -hmm. and so we could we could cover it in a semester pretty easily because uh we were doing a couple of episodes a week and uh, the students were sure uh watching them uh together and uh uh, writing about them and uh uh, the problem of course was uh that the show kept going on and on (laughs) i think uh i didn't actually i think i got up to season six or something like that but at, at a certain point we just had to say you've seen a the first two seasons before you start the course and we're going to jump into it. Uh, so that got me into it. And I was uh, interested in television scholars who were talking about uh, what the form of long form television was. And I think, you know, Game of Thrones is right up there in the pantheon of uh, probably the three or four best shows that have been done. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Now you're, you're not like naturally inclined to fantasy lit. No, I'm not. But there's uh, something there was something about that show, yes, that attracted you and I'm and I, I maybe you could just talk a little bit about like why that show was different than maybe some of the other fantasy adaptations that you'd seen. Well, I I mentioned that I'm a, I have a PhD in American Studies, so I've always had a a lively interest in history and I've had a, lot, a big interest in uh European history. And I think what particularly struck me about this fantasy show was that it, you know, it echoed things in uh, Nordic uh, sagas Mm -hmm. and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, War of the Roses and the the, uh, English history. And uh, uh, you have, you can, if if you watch the show, you can tell that George Martin has done his history courses and and, uh, uh, read the a lot of history uh, of uh, Europe and uh, uh, incorporated that into the the fantasy that he's concocted here. And so I think uh, that certainly was part of the attraction to me. Yeah. yeah but, so it's kind of, it kind of gave you like a historical playground, I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. All right. And so so we, we started doing the class with Val. Val was a medieval yeah, yeah. history specialist. And so she was bringing the perspective of uh, how does this conform to medieval history? And I was bringing a perspective of uh, mm-hmm. what's the form here and uh, how does this uh, work as a, a, a television series and what's going on with uh, um, peak TV and things yeah, like that. Sure. So, uh, and I just, I'll just alert uh, folks that uh, Jeff is referring to Val Garver, who was just on last week. Yes, and um, so all right, so let's let's talk a little House of the Dragon here. So okay, I wonder. Uh, let me just make this absurd statement and see see how you react to it. I wonder if House of the Dragon fits less comfortably within the fantasy genre. I wonder if we would be better served to think of it in terms of a political drama with some fantasy elements sprinkled in on the side. What do you think I, about the genre of the show? Well, the genre of the show, uh, it's its a very dark show. Um, I can't help comparing it to Game of Thrones, and I want to limit it to the first season of Game of Thrones, but... Uh, uh, this show had a budget when they started, and uh, <laughs> I, I thought that uh, you know the dragons were amazing. The special effects yeah, yeah. Uh, of the show kind of, I think, overwhelmed uh, some of what was going on in the narrative and the characters and things like that. Whereas uh, Game of Thrones, when it first started, they were having trouble getting a budget together that could allow for more than 30 horses being in a particular sure. scene and things like that. Right, right. Uh, but after it became a a hit show they were able to seriously bump up the budget and they were doing these big battle scenes and uh the last season of game of thrones was just was like watching a feature film in terms of the uh, right. special effects and the the scale of what they were doing and uh house of dragon started in like that they they had uh this big castle set they had these fantastic dragons and i think uh the problem with it for me was that they didn't have a character like Tyrion in it. Instead, right. they were all, they were obsessed with uh, getting these dragons as realistic yeah, as possible. Yeah, but couldn't we say that most shows don't have a character like Tyrion in it? I mean, yes, you very much could say that. I mean, I mean, maybe. I mean, Dinklage, I, Dinklage in that first he was series. Amazing, yeah. that, I mean, how how often will you find a character that complex? I just think. Uh, yeah, of course, there's no Tyrion in this show, but of course, there's, <laughs> Tyrion Lannister isn't in a lot of shows that I like, yeah. you know. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm curious about what you think about this genre. Like, do would do you think that this is more like Game of Thrones or more like House of Cards? Uh, yeah, I'd say it's more like House of Cards. Isn't you're... that amazing? Like, you've yeah, spent yeah. all of this money on this dragon budget. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't know how much how much of the budget actually went to the dragons, but uh, you, it's almost like you're you're throwing a mass amount of money at the dragons. In reality, the sh- the backbone of the show is this political thriller or political epic or something like that. Uh, that's that's much more in line with a uh, political drama, I think. I think that's a perfect comparison, actually, because uh, uh, it has that same sort of sleaziness that uh, <laughs> uh, House of Cards has. But uh, 
And what you're missing in that, you know, we certainly agree that Tyrion is a fantastic character, uh-huh. but there's a warmth in Game of Thrones in that. Uh, there's no the in this in yes in this well, the show, Ned Stark family is what I'm thinking about. There but, are uh, no. There's no like Jon Snow. There's no Arya. There's, no, there's right. There's, there's, you know. Nobody's in love, really. You know, I mean, it, it, there's <laughs> there's a couple of sexual relationships. Okay, but, uh, that's interesting. Uh, let me throw something about this show that I really like, and maybe this resonates and maybe it doesn't but i think if i think of this as an ensemble cast i feel like i'm a little disappointed i think you know there may be two or three characters that really catch my attention that really draw my interest and so if you think about the larger ensemble i think "Mm," doesn't work as well as game of thrones but if i think of this like a scorsese film where i'm watching viserys slowly ruin his legacy (laughs) right (laughs) like if i'm slowly spiral into you know into sort of a king lear figure yes if yes so if i think of it as like the singular performance of patty constantine i kind of think this is a pretty great show yeah he was compelling i you know, I, I don't. I don't. Again, it, it, they turned it over to the special effects, and they uh, they mangled his face at the end, and it was very striking and all that. But uh, uh, yeah, he was an interesting character. But there were a lot of interesting characters in uh, House of Cards and uh, yeah. Game of Thrones too. But, sure, uh, sure, 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 sure. Uh, so okay, so yeah, so we're comparing the show to show. Um, do you feel like if you had seen this show first, and and you had no exposure to game of thrones would this have caught your attention would you have you know would you have sat down and watched all 10 episodes oh i I would have watched it all because i mean it's technically superb i mean the the uh i'm i'm not one of the people who was upset about the lighting i thought it it looked interesting and uh uh, i I have a good tv set so i was able to get through it fine (laughs) but uh i am not at all uh attracted to reading the books with this one i I have a feeling they're probably a real drag and i'm not going to go near them whereas with game of thrones i i did want to read those books and i read the whole series and i'm waiting for the rest of it but uh, (laughs) well uh, that's right and i I, you're probably right about that i feel like the book material is to me significantly less rewarding than the adaptation which i absolutely would not say I mean, I, I I love the. I mean, I guess Game of Thrones is my favorite show. I would say that, but the books are so much better for my taste, but not for House of the Dragon. I feel like this yeah. this show is is a significant improvement on the source material. But you say that this the show is technically speaking superb. So could you like? I'm just wondering what what kind of stuff are you pointing out in the classroom that maybe sort of a more casual audience isn't noticing about the way that this show is crafted? Um, it has a sense of uh, spectacle, and we we think of television as being that box in your living room, whereas uh, movies, which I think in a lot of ways this is a dying art form. Movies were widescreen. They were Cinerama. They right. were uh, VistaVision, things like that. And that was a place where you could put large stories with big crowds, Ben-Hur type stuff. Yeah. 
on the screen and TV was always sort of excluded from doing that kind of stuff because of uh, the budgets and because of the format for how they were delivering yeah, it. Yeah, with TV, uh, everything was smaller, smaller right. budget, smaller screens, smaller and cutting actors. the commercials and <laughs> things like that. But I, as I was watching Game of Thrones, and to a certain extent as I was watching some of the episodes of House of Dragon, uh, I thought a lot about Kurosawa and his uh, the way he shot Ran and some of his big Seven Samurai and some of his big uh, epics that featured these big battles and stylized lighting and things like that and uh, i i felt sure that the uh, cinematographers were watching kurosawa to uh, think about how they were going to put together some of the uh uh the visual plans for how they were going to uh bring that to to pass yeah that's really interesting that you say that because i think one of the key criticisms that this show got was that there's a lot of tapestries (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's there's a lot of stone walls and big tables. This show has an indoor problem that a lot of people have already noted. It's like the first show, you were really kind of traveling to all kinds of different parts of the exactly, globe. Yeah. This show happens so often indoors. So to hear you say that is a little bit odd because of one of the chief criticisms of the show. Uh, I haven't read much of the criticism of this particular show, but did they focus in on this being a show shot during COVID? And did that cause some of the, uh, the I introspection? Think, of I, I haven't heard the, the COVID excuse as much. I've heard like, geez, come on, get us out, get us out of the the godswood for once. You know, we, we, yeah. we, we too much of this is shot in the King's bedroom Right. Uh, you know, and so that I think that was one of the the other major issue, of course, was the time jumps. But um, to, but I think to hear you point out the Kurosawa link is really helpful to me uh, because it, it draws me to some of these other I guess, scenes in the show where there is this kind of wide scope. That that being said, I, I don't feel that. The Dragon Show has quite gotten up to uh, a couple of the battle scenes in Game of Thrones, oh, yeah. but those those developed over you know seven or eight years. They kind of led up to uh, Hard Home and uh, uh, the Battle of Blackwater and, and things like that. Yeah, those were right, right. just amazing set pieces. And, uh, uh, and well, I, I think we'll probably get something. I mean, we'll, we'll yeah, definitely... it, it, it's, it, they've got time. Yeah, so. Um, uh, Again, well, if you went back to the if you went back to the first season of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. they didn't have any of those set pieces that they that they later have as the show became a hit. So. Sure, sure, sure. When when do you feel like this shift happened? You know, like I like I'm old enough to remember. You know, if you want to see some serious acting, you want to see serious art, you go to the the theater. Mm-hmm. And then I felt like. For a good ten years, it was like, nope, all that stuff's on HBO. Yeah, you, the Wire's doing something significantly better than most of the things that I'm seeing at the theater. Yeah, well, the Wire, I might argue, is maybe the greatest television show ever done, but it's a cult show. It has never had the kind of wide appeal that uh, Game of Thrones or or The Sopranos or uh, uh, Breaking Bad had. Uh, I uh, I think it's. The Wire is just so much more ambitious in terms of the themes than yeah. than any of these other shows. But, uh, um, but uh, yeah, when did this shift in your mind happen? 
Well, I think it, it happened with, uh, I think the real beginning is The Sopranos, uh, because that was a show that huh. uh, just built and built and built and just had a narrative arc to it. And you followed Tony and his family and uh, you kind of live with them. Just to go back to a point you alluded to just a few minutes ago, this show, uh, The Dragon Show, uh, they they jumped on this Rhaenyra character from one actress to the other within the course of one season. Yeah. I thought that was an error. I think they should have finished with one actress in one season and then That's interesting. Brought, brought the other one in the next season. They, they're going too fast in a way. And I don't think they allowed things to develop the way they did with uh, uh, Game of Thrones. And so uh, I, I'm sorry if I'm moving back. Uh, in terms no, of no, no. That's, uh, that's an interesting point. I mean, I do feel like there's something lost with the the emotional connection with the audience, right? And that's uh, that's very important to success of the show, I think. So, uh. so yeah, so we're really kind of going back to Sopranos, not not necessarily saying that that's better than The Wire. It's just that that show had, I guess, the right timing and the right audience. Well, if, if I just talk demographics, the, the Sopranos was pulling. Uh, 10 million viewers on a Sunday night on a fairly regular basis. And uh, uh, that's when uh, HBO was starting to get numbers that uh, could compete with uh, the broadcast networks and eventually surpassed when you figure in uh, the uh, repeat view time shifting and things like that. So uh, I I think uh, I'm thinking that uh, the end of uh, game of Thrones, I think somebody estimated that 30 million people watched it on that Sunday night, uh, when it came out, so that gives you a sense of uh, the the reach of these shows, right. and it, they became another term that came up with uh, uh, the HBO shows was water cooler shows, where uh, people would be standing around the water cooler yeah, at yeah. work talking about what happened Sunday night on uh, Breaking Bad or uh, Game of Thrones or uh, uh, The Sopranos or Deadwood or something like that. Yeah. And it became sort of a leading force in the culture. And uh, I, I think, you know, some movies had that. Uh, obviously, when The Godfather came out, uh, everybody was talking about uh, making you an offer you can't refuse and things <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, sure. uh, and so there, there's been shifts in American culture. It used to be that uh, everybody wanted to write the great American novel and then uh-huh. sort of became the great American movie. But now I think it's the the great uh, American uh, television series. And, of course, there's a competing argument for uh, music, but uh, uh, these are the things that kind of drive our culture. So. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm curious about uh, your just your general feeling about uh, House of the Dragon. I'm I just as a I don't know. I mean, measuring against the first show is probably the most natural thing to do, and yet what you're doing, if we both agree, it's one of the you know top five shows of all time. It's a little, isn't it a little bit unfair to say, well, it's good, but it's not one of the best five shows of all time. Well, we've only seen one season, you know, sure. uh, put it out there for four or five seasons. And uh-huh. uh, they've already, you know, in the third episode, they announced that they, they'd already renewed for the second season. So it's clear that HBO thinks that they've got a hit on their hands. They need an anchor on Sunday night to uh, yeah, yeah. keep their subscriptions coming in. And they've got more competition now than they did back when The Sopranos were on. So, sure thing. Uh, because uh, Disney and uh, Amazon and uh, Hulu and all these other services are trying to siphon off some of their 
uh, subscribers. So, uh, but I, I think they've got a hit. I think the show probably will get better as it goes along. Uh, but, uh, uh, and I'm going to watch it and I'll, I'll be a faithful fan of it, but, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to like it as much as I did game of Thrones. Yeah, no, I, we'll I, yeah, I feel the same way. I feel the same way for sure. Uh, what, what elements of the show did you like? Um, I, uh, I'm always a sucker for the, the political aspects of it. Uh, I liked how they uh, tried to put together that, that council that uh, is always fighting with each other and uh, <laughs> um, the palace intrigues and things like that. I, I, I think that's real enough. I, you know, in some ways it's getting old now, but uh, to just kind of to take the hero Patina off the uh, – characters and say yeah uh-huh. these rulers were having incest and uh, uh had uh blinding ambition and uh would kill somebody else's kid to advance their yeah. cause i mean that stuff's interesting in terms of kind of looking at the the depths of uh, what humanity can sink to and uh, i think in the age of uh the politics that we're living in right now that resonated in a lot of ways. So I like the show and I, I think dragon special effects are, are great too. So I, I'm kind of, uh, uh, you know, flying through the air with a dragon and having a, a dog fight up there with a, another dragon. It's, 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 it's compelling TV to watch. Do you feel like you're drawn to a character? Cause I feel like the first season I was like, I was not expecting to be so, to find Viserys so interesting. I felt like he's kind yeah. of like a milk toast kind of guy, but then the every episode progressed and I thought, oh, I'm more and more drawn to this guy. And now he's gone. I'm wondering yeah, who's yeah. going to carry the water here. Well, he was about mortality, you know. We saw a guy who was facing the end, and uh, you know, he decides to get a young wife uh, to uh, kind of stave off his uh, his old age crisis. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I think the character that I've been drawn to is uh, uh, Damon, uh, the uh, yeah. uh, the Matt Smith character. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that actor has just got a presence about him that. Uh, makes you wonder what he's going to do next and he is such a wild card that yeah. i i think if there's some potential for a character taking over in the next few seasons the way the way maybe uh cersei lannister did in game of thrones uh-huh. uh, i i think it's damon and uh so i uh i'm looking forward to what they do with him in the second season i suppose but uh, so he's an he's fascinating to me because I don't even know if you could call him an anti-hero. I think he's just a villain. He's he, he's more Darth Vader than he is yeah, Michael yeah. Corleone. Yeah. And yet... Well, he's also more Jamie Lannister, too, you know? And, uh, I even and think Jamie, Jamie Lannister was uh, sort of arcing toward redemption. Yeah, that, that's what made him interesting. Is but that, I don't you know, see Damon arcing toward redemption he's gone from chopping off balls to choking his wife you know i i I think he has the potential because did there was a juncture in the show where he could have uh taken over i thought Uh he uh he he left it to his brother and uh i thought you know i I think they should have explored that a little bit more but uh i i think there's potential with this character i just don't you know i haven't read Uh the books so i don't know what they're going to do with them but uh uh, so you you've written a book on Francis Ford Coppola. So I'm assuming you've watched uh, the Godfather series at least a few times. Well, twenty five or thirty, <laughs> probably. <you know? laughs> just just twenty five or thirty. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering. It's an interest to me. 
the relationship in the family has a has a few parallels. And I think yeah. I think in both cases, I mean, let's let's be let's be clear about this. I do think that there's something about the at least the first couple of Godfathers that are trying to show you that this family is functioning in a very ancient way. These family dynamics have existed in Sicily for, you know, time in memoriam. And now we're sure. seeing them yeah. in, you know, 1930s America or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, when Coppola was first offered the book by uh, Mario Puzo, he turned it down. He said, oh, this is schlocky. It's about a, a guy with a big penis and a doctor who's doing a, <laughs> a surgery on a woman. And uh -huh. he said, this is schlock. This is uh, uh -huh. Harold Robbins. And uh, uh, But he, his uh, company, uh, American Zoetrope, was, uh, was failing. And so uh, George Lucas told him, oh, why don't you take another look at this thing? And so he went back and he read it a second time. And he said, oh, wait a minute. This is a story about a king and three sons. Yes. And once he had that that framework about it's a family story, it's about succession, it's yes. about the family dynamics. Uh, then he uh, then he got into the story and he started. Uh, another thing was the studio was gonna yeah. was gonna totally mangle the book. They wanted to put it in St. Louis in the contemporary time. They were talking about Robert Redford being uh, uh, being. Uh, uh, Michael and things like that, and Coppola said, "No, no, let's let's go back to those Sicilian roots, and uh, uh, let's bring in opera and uh, yeah, yeah. The food, the food that they eat, and the the organization of the uh, families, and uh, uh, and then there was, of course, this question about uh, whether they could call it the mafia or not, but uh, uh, but finally, yeah. Uh, so that's Frank interesting. So if he he recognized that the that the most interesting thing about the drama." was the thing that seemed almost medieval. It's like a king and three sons, and there's an mm -hmm. issue of succession. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if this show has some of that, those same kinds of relationships. And I'm thinking specifically about like what it means to be a little brother in this ancient world. You know, if you're a little brother, you really have no recourse to power, not in the way well, that kinda, your older brother It's kind does. of uh, Harry and Meghan, isn't it? Uh, I would think so. I would think yeah. that there's something about the very ancient, I don't know, mystique of the Godfather, where it's like, these brothers have a role, and, the, and the, mm -hmm. these brothers are going to look a particular way, and yet, it's the youngest brother who ends up coming into power in the end, which is, you know, that's a very old, that's a very biblical concept, actually. Yeah, yeah. And... That upending of the social fabric is going to have so many consequences, but not yeah, just consequences yeah. for like the power of the family, but consequences for the psychology of each character. Like Damon's yeah. Damon is a second son, and he has all of the insecurity of a second son. And I wonder if he's driven by this idea that he'll never rise above that title you know he'll never rise beyond being a second son no matter how much power he gets no how no matter how much he tries well i would put a couple of wrinkles on it um i think uh 
he is a fantastic fighter. That scene where he's over on the island and he's sort of a, a one-man wrecking crew. It yeah. almost feels like a Tarantino movie or something like sure. that. I think he's a better fighter than he is a strategist or a person who makes people work together or a, a leader. I, don't, I, don't, uh-huh. I haven't seen any He's a little qualities. more sunny than he is Michael, right? Yeah, but see, he's linked to uh, Rhaenyra, who uh-huh. I think in the arc of this show, uh, the the what they're playing with is the idea that maybe, okay, the oldest son is not supposed to be the person who inherits the uh, kingdom. Uh, maybe it's the daughter. And so she's right. supposed to be uh, this uh, her- hero warrior princess who uh, takes over to the throne and uh, uh, rules the seven kingdoms uh, in a way that uh, uh, is, is to the glory of them all. Uh, so I haven't seen that kind of, worked out yet i'm thinking the season two will get a sense of whether rhaenyra actually right uh, can rule the place probably not uh, but uh, uh but as we're looking back on this as a prequel we we know that she's a historical uh fabled figure that uh, some of the characters talk about in game of thrones so that that's going to be one of the dynamics i look for as i continue with the show so right house of the dragon seems to have some of that fatherly and brotherly conflict um yeah some some of those successions but it feels to me like at the end of the day this is a question of gender right it's not yeah. something well, that we don't see in in the comparison on the big rivalry with allison too so you know it's there's the competing right uh, and i think that you've got i think alicent is very much cast in the mold of this ancient woman whose success has to flow through the men in her life you know her particularly her father yeah her father's power she has to live in that shadow or she has to be an extension of her father's power and then of course as soon as her son's of age now she's you know she's extending her own power through her son yeah, you know, historically speaking, she is doing she's doing all the right things as a royal mother, whereas Rhaenyra is like she's going to break every rule there is, and uh, and and she'll just you know because she's got dragons, she's gonna make everyone kind of bend to her will. Uh, I would you know, there's all some interesting complexities with it in that uh, uh, Rhaenyra's uh, sons, of course, are by another man uh, and she's right. got a a husband who is gay so uh but i think if we compare the the potential inheritors of the throne uh, her sons seem to be uh more grounded uh whereas uh Allison's sons are just waste cased and uh, yeah. not uh, at all suitable to be uh taking over the throne so to speak so uh th- did th- you say waste cased yeah, they're they're waste. <laughs> I mean, once a, a drunkard. I, I, I just and, thought uh, maybe you introduced a new vocabulary word I'm not familiar with. No, I it uh, it actually uh, I'm reading some book where uh, they talk about people being waste case. That's the I'm always well, the excited new bar- new when, I, when I encounter book, something yeah. like that. Yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I think look. Yes, of course, the show is about questions of succession, and I think that they they made a brilliant move to kind of bring in modern race uh, recognition yeah, to, to yeah. kind of just even, you know, even more highlight the fact that clearly these, they're not hurt, you know, these are not legitimate children. Right. Um, 
Uh, because if if they were Lenore's children, they would look different, right? So I, I think that was a brilliant move on the part of the showrunners. Yeah, I've I've actually warmed up to it. They've they've brought me around to it. I think they've done it with enough uh, sensitivity and complexity that I, I'm buying into it. I think it really adds something to the show. It add, and, and I don't uh, think that you would have uh, known how much it was going to add until those later episodes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I've appreciated that for sure. And I think uh, very, very well done uh, in, in terms of casting. I feel like I feel like every casting choice, with the exception of um, the uh, White Worm, I feel like oh goodness, I'm not yeah, sure what yeah. what's going on. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on with her accent. <laughs> it's, it's a little unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, hey, I've I've really appreciated uh, talking with you about this. Well, I uh, enjoyed talking to you. Can you tell me, uh, what was the book that you did? Okay, yeah. So we did um, uh, two books, two volumes. They're called Gods of Thrones. And they're sort of a chapter-by-chapter deep dive into the religions of the show. That's kind of my background, religious studies. Uh And so I co-wrote that with Aaron, who's, who's sort of the chief voice of this podcast. And uh, we decided, you know, we want to make this fun. So the book is as much about sort of like trying to make it entertaining as it's trying. But it's what, kind what, of a uh, sneaky... What year did it come out? When, when did the final season of Game of Thrones come out? Same, same, oh, geez, uh... same as the final season of Game of Thrones. Oh, so it came out at the final season. Okay. But uh, if you want to if you want to find it online... I'm sure you can get it for... If I just search you, I should be able to find it, right? Yeah, or just put in uh, Gods of Thrones. Um, okay. And th- that should, there's two volumes. I'm actually pretty proud of it. It's unlike anything I've ever done um, in terms of academic writing. We we try to sneak in a little bit of history of religions. Uh, okay. That was uh, one of the subjects of our, of our when we did our uh, our honors seminar. We had uh, one of the groups did a really good uh, pr- presentation on uh, mm-hmm. the religious aspects of Game of Thrones, sure and I know there's been a lot written about it. The reason I'm asking uh, Anthony is that uh, uh, I edited when I when I was working with the graduate students, I edited this huge bibliography for uh, Oxford University Press, and. Uh, they're going to be asking me to update it pretty soon. I would and, love uh, it if you would include the the book. You know, it's it's sort of it's an odd book in the sense that uh, you know we use the footnotes exclusively for jokes. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, hey man, well, so. I appreciate uh, your time. I appreciate okay. your generosity. I've enjoyed it as well. Hopefully, we can uh, connect again sometime. Very good, Anthony. All right. Great, great talking to you, you too. Okay. Yeah.